Uh, you guys can turn to Ecclesiastes, somewhere close to the middle of your Bibles. You'll find it there. And we'll be in chapter 5 and 6 today. Um, there's not going to be a test on this, so you don't need to know this. But um, the way this is written is um, it, there's a Hebrew form of writing a, a, a text that's called a chiasm, or it's a chiastic model. And basically the way that works is you have your points that kind of come down to a main point, and then it backs out of that in a kind of a mirror image with the same kind of points that led you to the conclusion. So you kind of come into the conclusion, then you come out. We don't learn that way in, in the West, you know, the Western kind of culture. We like things to be linear, like give me my points and then give me my conclusion. And so we don't see how it's kind of put together in Hebrew. And I'm not going to, uh, you know, um, belabor that, but but just so you know, that's why we're going through the section we're going through. It was kind of meant to be taken together. So we're going to start in verse eight. We're going to go through verse nine of chapter six and um, and we'll kind of do it the way he's written and then back into the conclusion at the end. So you don't have to know any of that, but just in case you're wondering the method to the madness, that's what it is. OK, so the preacher Solomon is going to talk to us today about the pursuit of riches. Um, remember that the point of Ecclesiastes is that if this is all that there is, then everything is meaningless. Of course, as Christians, we know this is not all that there is, but sometimes we act like it's all that it is. Sometimes we, um, we look for meaning and purpose and fulfillment in the world around us, and money is a, definitely a place where we do that. Uh, Ecclesiastes is, is a book where Solomon, it's kind of like he works for, you know, the, I don't know, what, the roads department, and, and he's gone through down all these pathways that look promising, found out what's down there, and then he's come back and he's like put dead end signs up there for us so that we can say, oh, there's nothing there for us. We don't have to go down those paths. It's kind of gracious that he's done that. And this is one of those areas where he's trying to save us time and frustration by doing this. The pursuit of riches is a path that leads to destruction. It, it looks promising, but it ends up being a dead end. Now we also need to remember who's writing this. I mean, Solomon's not a, he's not a guy that was just scraping by. He's, he's not somebody that was living paycheck to paycheck. He had more riches than we will ever imagine. And yet this is the conclusion that he came to. He's saying it's empty. Now, don't, um, don't do that thing that a lot of us do where we excuse ourselves from a topic immediately because it's easy for me to say, you know what, I'm not rich. And so this doesn't, this doesn't have anything to do with me. That doesn't describe me and you tune out. If you've ever been discontent with your current situation and thought that whatever you have is not enough, th this will apply to you. <laughs> I know it, it applies to me. I can't tell you all the times I thought if I just had a little more money, if I just had a little more stuff, I'd finally be happy. I'd finally have arrived at that place that I want to be. I think that way still. E even that I would have the security that I need if I finally did that. And so that's going to be kind of the main theme of what we're going to be looking at this morning. But Solomon starts out in verses 8 and 9 by pointing out that greed and corruption and oppression are part of what we can expect when the world around us makes money the pursuit, the goal. And so we start out in verse 8 and it says this, If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and yet they are higher ones over him. But this is a gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Um, I used to work for a, for a large corporation, and I remember the day 
that it became clear that this company cared nothing about the customers and cared nothing about the employees. The only thing they cared about were the stockholders because that's ultimately where the money was to be made. And so they were more than happy to, to cheat the customers and cheat the employees as long as they were able to produce the numbers needed. And it, it was obvious. It was obvious to me and it was obvious to my boss. He knew what the deal was, but you know what? Even though he saw it, he couldn't do anything about it because guess what? He had received his marching orders for the person above him, and, and it was he had to, these are the numbers we need, you make it happen. And, and the person above them, and the person above them, and so on and so forth. That's the deal, that's the way it was. And sadly, this is the same principle we see in our government today, which is extremely frustrating, but we kind of see that the politicians in charge are all about grabbing more money and grabbing more power with very little thought to the, you know, the commoners down at the, the bottom of the food chain, so to speak. This has existed in our broken world. It exists now and it will continue to exist. Solomon says we shouldn't be shocked or amazed when we see it, even though it's extremely frustrating. Now there may be times when God uses us as his people to help the poor and to make a stand for, for the oppressed. There may be a time when God uses us to bring justice or to, to make a stand for righteousness. Those are good things to do when God gives us the opportunity. So, so Solomon's not saying don't do anything about it. He's just saying don't be shocked when you see it. But his point is that it's too big of a hole to fill. It, it, we can't do it. it. Even if we put all of our time and effort into it, we could never fill that hole. And the people in authority aren't going to do anything about it either, apparently. So. But as Christians, here's the thing. We don't need to despair over this. We can take heart because we're looking forward to a better king and a better kingdom where corruption, oppression, injustice, and unrighteousness will not exist. I can't wait for that day. Now, verse 9 is kind of a difficult verse for scholars to interpret, but the idea is that there is benefit for everyone when corruption and oppression are kept into check. So it talks about a king being committed to the cultivation of the fields. And that just means that he sees value in those that are the you know, again, the bottom of the social ladder, those workers are necessary for everything else to work. And that's kind of the point that's being made. And we're beginning again to kind of see the importance of this in our own country right now. I don't know if you've noticed, but everywhere you go, they have, you know, for hire kind of signs, you know, we're hiring signs everywhere right now. People won't, they're not working. So we're, we're seeing like, we don't, we need truck drivers and we need restaurant people and we need cashiers and we if you if you don't have these people doing the work everything kind of comes to a grinding halt policemen you know who knew they were important but apparently when you don't have policemen things start to go kind of rough too and you know so the king that knows this will try to take care of all that so there's a that's kind of the point of what he's trying to say there the common worker matters and as christians we need to see every person as somebody who has value Every person has been created in the image of God and has value because of that, no matter who they are. Marginalized in society, all through his word, he talks about the orphan and the widow. Those are the people that, that could not take care of themselves and they need somebody to step in and be that person that helps. And that's what the church is called to do. And, and I love that we are a church that is mindful of this. We're, we, we look outward in ways we can help and we wanna continue that. Uh, we're gonna have a huge opportunity coming up as the weather continues to get colder by getting the warming center up and going again soon. And we would love to see as many people as possible take part in that. We're gonna be revamping the building. We're gonna be getting it set up to where we've got like a men's side and a women's side with bunk beds. And we're working on, you know, food and flooring and paint. And there's gonna be a lot to do, but you know, even to volunteer there, but that's a way for us to just take care of people in the community that can't care for themselves and to show the love of God. So 
complete side note has nothing to do with this, but in verse 10, what we're going to see is the preacher now kind of begins to warn those who are looking to find their satisfaction through the pursuit of riches by letting him know all the reasons that it ends up being meaningless. It's a worthless pursuit. It's, it's, it's like trying to chase down and capture wind in your arms. It's not going to, it's not going to work. Now I borrowed this, the outline that I'm going to use from uh, Daniel Aiken's commentary, Exalting Jesus and Ecclesiastes, not the the whole meat of it, but just the outline, and I just want to give credit where credit's due. So <clears throat> the first reason he gives is found in verse 10. The pursuit of riches won't work because you'll never have enough. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So Solomon, with all that he had, came to this conclusion. And you might be tempted to think, well, maybe he wasn't doing it right. You know, let me take a crack at it. See if maybe, you know, give me all that, those riches and let's see if I can come up with something different. But I want you to know Solomon's not the only wealthy man to ever come to this same conclusion. There was a guy named J.D. Rockefeller, uh, considered the wealthiest American ever. He owned Standard Oil Company. And um, if you were to take his net worth and put it in today's dollars, it would be over $400 billion. And just to give you kind of a reference point, the biggies today, the richy riches of today, the Bezos and the, uh, the Musks and the Gates and all those guys, they're not, they haven't even cracked 200 billion. So Rockefeller, big deal. And this is what he said one time. He was asked, how much money is enough? And he answered this, just a little bit more. <laughs> just a little bit more than 400 billion? Are you kidding me? I mean, think about that. Would you even notice a little bit more at that point? Could you even spend a little bit more at that point? But, but Solomon's point is made here for us. Money can't buy us happiness. It can't buy us satisfaction. It can't buy us security. But if we think it can, we will continue that pursuit. We will keep running down that road in hopes that maybe, just maybe, we'll finally get there. It's like a treadmill. <laughs> it's, you just picture these guys running on a treadmill. They're not going anywhere, but they don't know it. Second reason he gives is this. The reason that the pursuit of money won't get you anywhere is because you'll attract leeches. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting way to put it. You'll attract leeches. That's kind of gross, right? But I love the verse found in Proverbs 30, 15. It says, the leech has two daughters, give and give. <laughs> That's what leeches do. They just, they just want more and more and more. So verse 11 says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? So you, you have this picture of like the money's coming in and the, and the guy's just watching it. And like, I see that. But then the money's going out as quick as it's coming in. It's coming in, but it's getting consumed. And all he can do is stand there and watch. And we see this uh, like when somebody wins the lottery, this idea of leeches. <clears throat> they win the lottery. They win big. And guess what happens next? All the friends and family members that they've never seen, you know, for years and years just kind of come out of the woodwork saying, hey, I'm here for you if you need anything. You know, it's, it's that idea of the more you make, the more somebody's going to come and want, to, want some of it. The IRS will come too. That's another leech that's going to come trying to get what's theirs, correct? And it's not just leeches that will consume because the idea is this. If you get a bigger house, what do you need next? Well, you, you need somebody to clean it. Can't expect me to clean this place, so you got to hire somebody to do that. And if you get more cars, well, I got to have a place to park them and a way to maintain them. If you get more stuff, well, I'm going to need more land. I'm going to need bigger barns to store all my stuff in. So as it comes in, you're going to just see it, it keeps going out. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you know, I have that mindset of like, if we only made two or three hundred dollars more a month, it would make all the difference in the world. But every time we have, it's like 
it gets sucked out of the room as fast as it comes in. It's like, how did that happen? Because we keep finding ways to spend. There's no end in sight as to what we'll find to spend it on. That's just the way we are. Okay, the next thing that he says is the person that pursues riches won't sleep well. We see that in verse 12. It says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Have you ever, uh, have you ever eaten too much and then tried to go to bed? Just stuffed yourselves and then try to lay down to sleep. It doesn't work well. You don't sleep. You just sit there kind of groaning and making weird noises. I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> Sleeping with a full stomach doesn't work well. And, and what is the rich man's stomach full of? Well, here's the truth of the matter. When riches increase, anxiety increases, heartburn increases, and the vigilance that it takes to keep track of what's going on and, and all of this increases. You have to protect what's yours and you have to make sure that it's safe. So there's no time for sleep. You know, you've heard the old saying, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, that no doubt was said by somebody like this. People who pursue riches need to continually be in what I would call protection mode. Um, you, you, you have to be on high alert to make sure nobody's going to come in and take your stuff, make sure nothing happens to your stuff. That's a frustrating place to be. I, I, we used to, you know, when Joy and I, we had um, a lot of kids and when they were little, when we would get something new, I would jokingly say, let's just take a knife. You know, like we get a new dining room table. Let's just take a knife and just, just scratch the middle of it now. Let's just get it out of the way because I'm going to be in protection mode of my new thing. And I know they're going to ruin it. It's just a matter of time. So let's just get it out of the way. You know, we didn't actually do that, but it, it just helped ease the blow when it did happen. Kids, you know, these little, they're all grown now. Now I get to go to their house and destroy their stuff. So it's all coming around. Not really. I went to, uh, I was, I used to fix copiers for a living and I was in Idaho at this point and I went to fix this rich man's copier one time. It was in his, he had basically a mansion. It was this unbelievable place. And I went into his home office and um, they're work, working on his copier and he's in there. And I'm trying to make small talk with him, you know, how long you been in the area? You know, what do you do for fun? I don't know what I was trying to say, but the whole time I was talking to him, he would kind of answer me, but I'm over here and his TV's over here and he just, he would say, yeah, five years. Yeah. yeah you know, whatever, but he wouldn't look away from his TV. And I thought, what is he watching? What is he looking at? And so I finally kind of looked over. It was one of those financial shows and it was boring. I don't even know what it was about. I don't even watch that kind of stuff. But at the bottom of the screen, there was this little ticker that ran across the whole time that showed how the stocks were performing, you know, the Dow and the NASDAQ and crypto and whatever else. I don't even know what's out there anymore. But he, he could not look away from this. He was in protection mode. This guy couldn't look away from his TV. He was in that much of a mode of I have to know what's going on. I can't imagine this guy sleeping. He might sleep for an hour and jump up and have to go look at the TV again to find out where things are. What a miserable existence. All right, the next reason he gives us in verse 13 and, and pursuit of riches, he says that you'll end up hurting yourself, right? You'll, you'll put your eye out, as, as they say in Christmas story. You'll shoot your eye out, sorry. He says this in verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Solomon's describing the sin of greed, uh, this uncontrolled longing for more, regardless of what it takes to get it. It kind of reminds me of what the hoarder does. I don't know if you've ever watched those shows, Hoarder. I, don't, I can't stand watching them because they just make me, they stress me out to watch people amass all the stuff. But that's what they do. They amass so much stuff that they can't even function anymore. They can't even walk around their own house. They can't even sit down. It's, it's like that. So their stuff now owns them. 
the things that they thought would help them are now hurting them. So people like this end up driving everything good out of their lives. Money and stuff become more important than people and they end up all alone. So you'll hurt yourself. And the next thing he says is that a person who pursues riches will never truly be secure. In verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So, you know, we get obsessed with pursuing riches because they think they'll make us happy, but also because we think that they'll give us security for us and for our loved ones. But that, that security is an illusion. It's not real because guess what? It can all be lost in an instant. Um, I remember, I don't remember when it was, but I, we, there was a, it's probably been a decade ago or more, but, but I had a pretty good 401k going with this company, this large company I worked for. And I don't know what happened. Something happened and, and it went, you know, it turned into a 201k like overnight. All of a sudden, all of this was gone that I was banking on and it never came back. And it was super frustrating, but that's, that's the reality. Stock markets crash, investments don't pan out, thieves break in and steal, fire comes in and destroys. That's what can happen and it can all go away in a second. You know, we've watched this kind of happen, not, not necessarily with money all the time, but in the last couple of years, we've watched people's security just crumble out from underneath them. Things that people were counting on went away, whether it was government or health or money or whatever. We've watched it crumble and they're left just on, with no foundation of any kind at all. And people are destitute right now when it comes to hope. If our security comes from anything other than God, we're setting ourselves up for crushing disappointment. The security that we have in Christ cannot be taken from us because Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. You know how good that is for us? He won't lose us and we can't lose him. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And that sounds pretty good, but then he doubles down. He says, my father who has given to me, given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So I don't know if you see that, but I, I like to picture it as Jesus's hand, and then me, and then the father's hand, and I'm just like in this, this holy hand clasp of the father and the son, and it's like, you ain't getting out of there. You can't screw this up, Brent, and I praise God for that. And then Paul goes on in Romans to say, he just kind of says, it, it's safe. We are safe in Christ from every scenario. And I love how Paul does this. It's like, almost like he expects him to say, what about this? What about that? What about, you know? And so Paul just goes, let me just save you some time. Just say it this way. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he starts down his list. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's a pretty good list so far. But then he goes on in verse 37, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. And then he even includes nor height and depth. It's like he's just covering all the bases. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is true security. That ought to make you feel pretty comfy, just like a warm blanket. God loves me and he's not going to stop. That's my security. That's my rest. Okay. The next thing he says is for the person that pursues riches, you're going to leave it all behind. 
Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This is the same conclusion Job came to. Uh, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Although Job adds, blessed be the name of the Lord, because they're two different books. Ecclesiastes is talking about life apart from God. Job was experiencing life with God when he said that. So no matter what happens, blessed be the name of the Lord. But this is where we get that proverbial idea of you never see a U-Haul in a funeral procession, right? You don't, you don't ever see a U-Haul on the back of a hearse. You don't get to take it with you. And so it's this beautiful picture of this life is a race, and it's hard to, a race is something that's hard for me to picture enjoying because you're running, but, but this idea of, we're, you know, we're running this race. Can you imagine trying to carry all the stuff, possessions, money, everything that you, you know you have to drop it before the finish line. You know you don't get to take it across the finish line, but you want to carry it all anyway. It's kind of what he's talking about. Why would you do that? Throw it all down and enjoy the race. Enjoy the sun on your face. Enjoy the breeze. Enjoy it. Rest, knowing that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know, when you get across the finish line, it's all waiting for you. You have an inheritance. You have a place. You're, you get to be with me. We don't have to pile all this stuff up here. And this it doesn't matter here. It's going to go. We're not going to take it across the finish line. So look forward to what we get to have in Christ when the time comes. Okay, Solomon continues with the last thing that he's going to mention about uh, this, this person that pursues riches. And it's, it's found in verse 17 where he just says, you're going to be a miserable person. Moreover... All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. <laughs> Sounds like a party, doesn't it? You just picture this person sitting there with his lights off. You know, he's got all the money in the world, but he doesn't even want to turn the lights on anymore. He's in darkness. He's alone. He's, he's mad. He's bitter about the way everything's gone because nothing that he thought was going to pan out by going down that path ended up panning out. And he's, he's miserable. And this is the sad reality of a person who's made money the object of their affection. At the end of the life, they've driven everybody away, and they're alone, and they're miserable. Does it kind of remind you of Ebenezer Scrooge, right, in the, in the Dickens classic? Um, this, this miserable, greedy miser that is literally, nobody wants to be around this guy. He's just so, so miserable. And I couldn't help when I was, when I was putting this together of thinking of my, my in-laws. Wait till I, the opposite, I should say, of that. That sounded bad, but they're not here. Um, they are the exact opposite of this. So, so Joy's mom and dad, Jim and Claudia, are their names. They're this dear, godly Christian couple who has grown old gracefully. Um, they have literally given away more than they've kept in life. Yet they live in a quaint little home, and they have all the stuff they need. They're provided for. They're taken care of. But they have given away to their kids, their family, the church, people in need, almost everything they have. And they are blessed and happy and content. They live modestly, but they live. I mean, they just live this wonderful life in Christ. And they're a perfect example of the opposite of what this is all about. Now, Solomon's going to drive his, his point home even further. So this is kind of backing down the other side of that chiasm that we talked about, which just will just run with me here. Um, he's going to kind of turn it up to 11, though. So he's been making his point, but in this next section, he's really going to amp it up. And he, he's even going to make some pretty shocking statements. He's going to describe this person who has it all, uh, the one that we're often envious of. When we think about these people that have all these riches, we get envious of them. These people that have devoted their lives to the pursuit of riches, they've achieved their goal. And yet what he's going to show us is that it didn't work. 
They didn't find the enjoyment they were looking for. And it's such a sad waste of a life that Solomon actually calls it evil. So look at Ecclesiastes 6, starting in verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. <laughs> it's like he has everything he could ever want, but he isn't able to enjoy it. That sounds terrible. But what we see here is that the power or ability to enjoy something comes from God. Trying to find enjoyment apart from him is impossible because God has actually made it impossible. He has wired us and he programmed us to only be able to find satisfaction and enjoyment in him, which I kind of think is awesome. It's, it's just that, that's where we're going to find it, not apart from him, only in him. The preacher continues with this kind of shocking statement that I, that I mentioned in verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that his days or so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial or nobody that cares that he's even died, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. This is, uh, again, a shocking statement, but he's trying to make this stark contrast between the one who has it all and is never satisfied and the one who hasn't been able to accumulate anything yet and yet still has rest. So he's kind of flipping logic on its head. You know, we envy the person that has it all and we wish that we could have what they have and then we're brokenhearted over the thought of a, a stillborn baby who was never able to experience this life. But I think Solomon's saying, maybe we've got this a little bit backward. Maybe we should be brokenhearted over a life wasted pursuing created things instead of pursuing the creator. And we should rejoice in a baby that gets to avoid all of that craziness and go directly into God's presence and have rest. Solomon points out that even if the man were to live 2,000 years it still would be a complete tragedy if God wasn't part of his life. Like time's not going to fix this. And I think we think that way. You know what? If I only had a couple more years, maybe five or 10 more years to get to that goal. No, it doesn't matter. Even if you live 2000 years. So he says that in verse six, even though we should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. And that's not a reference to heaven or hell. It's just talking about dust to dust is the idea. Sorry. The wind just keeps whipping through this loudly. I wish I could stop that. But I can't. Um, his point is that even if a man extended his life to 2,000 years, it wouldn't benefit him, wouldn't change anything, and it wouldn't help him to accomplish his goal. His life would still be a pointless waste of time without God, and it ends up just becoming dirt at the end, you know, dust to dust. That's, that's how it all ends. And this is because of what it says in verse 7. It says, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And then he asks a couple of questions that are a little hard to understand. He says, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? And I believe the point he's making is this, that there is no advantage for the person who makes his life all about the pursuit of money, whether he's wise or foolish. It's going to be a waste of time. But, but then he talks about this, this other person. There is an advantage for someone who is, who is poor and yet figures out how to live this life. And he, and he tells us what this is in verse 9, where he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Said another way, be thankful and content for what's right in front of you. 
than always to always be chasing after what you don't have. And, and he's saying this person just figured that part out. So the teacher has keyed in on two major points. First, people who pursue wealth will never be satisfied. And second, it is evil when a person does not enjoy the life that God has gifted them. So what's the answer to all of this? It's learning to enjoy God's daily gifts and to be grateful and content with what he's given each of us. And that's where we kind of back into his main point back in chapter 5, verse 18, where he says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. When we talk about a person's lot, it means this is what God has given for you. Your lot may be different than this person's lot. And he's saying, be content with your lot. And then he goes on to say, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift from God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. The idea is that when we accept our lot in life and are occupied with, with joy in what God has blessed us with, we won't brood over what we don't have, but we will be thankful for what we do have. So somebody might ask the question in light of what our world is like today. How can, how can one learn to be content in a world like this when everything around us kind of brings the opposite of contentment? And for this, we must look to Christ. Jesus is the reason that we can be content. Um, in Psalm 73, if it's a psalm you're familiar with, you see the psalmist struggling as he looks at the world and how messed up it is and how, how evil people are succeeding. And he, he loses kind of his bearings. And at the end, he comes back into the house of God and around the people of God, and he changes his perspective. And, and this is what he says in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love the thought of God being my portion. You, know, you think about that. What's your portion? Oh, riches. Oh, that's too bad. You know what my portion is? God. <laughs> it's like, how do you like that? I mean, that's a good portion to have. Your portion is Christ. That's who God has given to you. You know, Paul learned the secret of contentment as well. And I, I love um, this, this section in Philippians 4 where Paul kind of talks about how he learned to be content. And he says this, and starting in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People like to take that verse and turn it into something about bungee jumping or winning a Super Bowl game. That's not what he's talking about. I can't go skydiving, you know, because Christ strengthens me. He's saying, I can get through being poor and naked and cold and hungry if I have Christ. If I have him, I can do all those things. Anything that, that comes my way, whatever circumstance I face, if I have Christ, I can get through it. And an attitude of contentment in every circumstance is something that the church needs desperately right now. Because I'm watching Christians just spinning around out of control not being content right now with what's going on. We need to learn to trust God and be content. First Timothy 6 tells us that it's great gain. Listen to this. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, 
With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Now I want you to notice that Solomon didn't say that having money is evil. It isn't necessarily evil. Loving money, pursuing money is. Having it, not necessarily. Because the truth is God has entrusted some people with wealth because he knows they can handle it. That's their lot, but he expects them to use it wisely and to use it in a way that glorifies him. And, and that's what Timothy says in, in the same chapter in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Sounds a lot like what Solomon's talking about. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Not the fake life that was promised in, in Ecclesiastes, but what is truly life. God wants his people to be generous and cheerful in their giving. Just as Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. I'm grateful for what I have witnessed in this church from day one and what we still see today. People generously, wonderfully caring for each other financially, in every other way. We just look out for each other. And I, I love that. Now, here's the ironic thing about some of what I'm talking about is most of us probably don't consider ourselves wealthy. You know, when I think if somebody would ask me, are you rich? I would probably say, no, I'm not. I'm not rich. You know, I do OK and I make ends meet. But no, I'm not rich. But compared to the rest of the world and throughout time, when you just think about how good we have it, we need to kind of think about this a little bit because it will cause us to be more content. Um, right now, I have excess food in my pantry that I'm probably going to end up throwing out. There's going to come a time where my daughter's going to come home from college, which she does, and she'll start going through the pantry and going, this is expired, this is expired. This, and she starts just like, you know, and I'm, I didn't even know. Stuff that's been in there forever. We never even got to it. I enjoy the luxury of keeping the temperature in my home not too cold, not too hot, but just right. I get to take a hot shower every day. I sleep on memory foam. I can just imagine like the Apostle Paul going, you sleep on what? It's called memory foam, Paul. It's just, it's like this luxury pillow of comfort that you just sink into. And, you know, can you see him shaking his head going, yeah, I slept on a stinking cold cell. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me too, Paul. It's like, yeah, right. We have, we have access to medicine, more clothes than we can wear. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. We are rich, whether we realize it or not. And we take these things for granted all the time. We act like we have nothing, but we have so much to be content for, so much to thank God for, so much that he's given us to enjoy. So in that sense, we are wealthy. But the truth is that God has not entrusted us with the kind of wealth that Solomon is talking about. Most of us will never have to worry about some of what he's talking about because most of us are what I would call daily bread people. Okay, a daily bread person. This also comes from Proverbs 30, which was King Agur, not Solomon, who wrote this. But he says this, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, 
I may have too much. I got to turn my page and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Daily bread, what we need. Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way. What did he tell them to ask the father when they prayed? Give us this day our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. And of course, this reminds us of the way that God provided for his, his children in the wilderness. If you know the story of Exodus, they left Egypt and they, they were in the desert for 40 years. A huge group of people that needed to be fed every day. And the, and the way that God did this was he gave them daily bread from heaven called manna. And I love that manna, if you, if you look at what that word means, it just means what is it? So you picture the first morning where this stuff comes on the ground and somebody goes, manna. And then they look over to manna, manna. They're all looking at each other saying manna. And that, the name stuck, you know. That's what they called it. What is it? It was just this weird bread from heaven. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. You were supposed to gather enough for you and your family. Not more, enough. Your daily bread. If you tried to gather more, it would rot, stink, and get wormy. It wouldn't, it wouldn't last. But... What about the Sabbath, you might ask? Good question. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so you can't go out gathering bread. So on that day, the day before, God said, gather twice as much as you need. Want to get stinky and wormy and rot? No, because God's given you this stuff. It's just amazing to me. So they would gather twice as much, and on that day, on the Sabbath, it kept, and they had enough for both days, and they didn't have to work. It wouldn't even show up on the Sabbath day. So on the seventh day, the manna just didn't even come. That's so cool, isn't it? And you just see, again... God knows what we need, he knows when we need it, and he knows how to provide it. How good is our God? So we don't need to hoard, we don't need to chase after riches, we can enjoy our daily bread and find rest in him. And of course the idea of daily bread is a reference to Jesus, who boldly announced to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus is our daily bread. He is what we need to sustain us in life. He is everything we need, period. So we have a choice between two ways of life. We can spend our time pursuing wealth, which will never satisfy, which will most likely pull us away from God, and which will ultimately lead us to disaster. Or we can be grateful for God's faithful and generous provision and simply learn to enjoy our daily bread. You have to choose your master. You can't have two masters, the Bible tells us. You will either serve money or you will serve God. So the question is, what are you pursuing? What are you looking for, for your happiness and your satisfaction and your security? If you're looking where the world is looking, it's going to lead you to ruin. It's just you're chasing after wind, right? But if you're looking to God and finding your enjoyment in him and in what he's given us, we will find great rest and contentment in this life and in the life to come. I love the verse, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will just be taken care of. It's a paraphrase, but that's the way we're supposed to live as Christians. So Father, thank you so much that you've, you've given us your word. You've given us Ecclesiastes, a book that tells us what not to do. And then you've given us all the other scriptures that show us how we're supposed to live. Help us as your people, knowing all that you've given us, especially in that you've given us your son, to be content, to be thankful, to be grateful, and not to want more, but to understand you've given us everything already. You are so good to us, Lord, and we just want to acknowledge that today and be grateful as your people in Jesus' name.
Amen.